Chapter 16, Part 1 of A Short Account of the History of Mathematics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This is a reading by Paul King, pjk.scripps.mit.edu forward slash pkj. A Short Account of the History of Mathematics by W. W. Rouse Ball. Chapter 16. The Life and Works of Newton. The mathematicians considered in the last chapter commence the creation of those processes which distinguish modern mathematics. The extraordinary abilities of Newton enabled him within a few years to perfect the more elementary of these processes and to distinctly advance every branch of mathematical science then studied as well as to create some new subjects. Newton was the contemporary and friend of Wallace, Huygens, and others of those mentioned in the last chapter, but though most of his mathematical work was done in between the years 1665 and 1686, the bulk of it was not printed at any rate in book form till some years later. I propose to discuss the works of Newton somewhat more fully than those of other mathematicians, partly because of the intrinsic importance of his discoveries, and partly because this book is mainly intended for English readers, and the development of mathematics in Great Britain was for a century entirely in the hands of the Newtonian school. Isaac Newton was born in Lincolnshire, near Grantham, on December 25th, 1642, and died at Kensington, London, on March 20, 1727. He was educated at Trinity College, Cambridge, and lived there from 1661 till 1696, during which time he produced the bulk of his work in mathematics. In 1696, he was appointed to a valuable government office, and moved to London, where he resided till his death. His father, who had died shortly before Newton was born, was a yeoman farmer, and it was intended that Newton should carry on the paternal farm. He was sent to school at Grantham, where his learning and mechanical proficiency excited some attention, and as one instance of his ingenuity I may mention that he constructed a clock worked by water, which kept very fair time. In 1656 he returned home to learn the business of a farmer under the guidance of an old family servant. Newton, however, spent most of his time studying problems, making experiments, or devising mechanical models. His mother, noticing this, sensibly resolved to find some more congenial occupation for him, and his uncle, having been himself educated at Trinity College, Cambridge, recommended that he should be sent there. In 1661, Newton accordingly entered as a subsidiar at Trinity College, where for the first time he found himself among surroundings which were likely to develop his powers. He seems somewhat to have but little interest for the general society or for any pursuits save science and mathematics, and he complained to his friends that he found the other undergraduates disorderly. Luckily, he kept a diary and we can thus form a fair idea of the course of education of the most advanced students at an English university at that time. 
he had not read any mathematics before coming into residence but was acquainted with sanderson's logic which was then frequently read as preliminary to mathematics at the beginning of his first october term he happened to stroll down to southridge fair and there picked up a book on astrology but could not understand it on account of the geometry and trigonometry he therefore bought a euclid and was surprised to find how obvious the preposition seemed he thereupon read Autred's clavis and descartes geometrie and the latter of which he managed to master by himself though with some difficulty the interest he felt in the subject led him to take up mathematics rather than chemistry as serious study his subsequent mathematical reading as an undergraduate was found on kepler's optics the works of vieta van schutten's miscellanies and descartes geometrie and wallace's arithmetica infinitorum he also attended barrow's lectures at a later time on reading euclid more carefully he formed a high opinion of it as an instrument of education and he used to express his regret that he had not applied himself to geometry before proceeding to algebraic analysis there is a manuscript of his dated may twenty eighth sixteen sixty five written in the same year as that which he took his b a degree which is the earliest documentary proof of his invention of fluxions it was about the same time that he discovered the binomial theorem on account of the plague the college was shut down in the summer of sixteen sixty five and for a large part of the next year and a half newton lived at home this period was crowded with brilliant discoveries he thought out the fundamental principles of his theory of gravitation namely that every particle of matter attracts every other particle and he suspected that the attraction varied as the product of their masses and inversely as the square of the distance between them he also worked out the fluxional calculus tolerably completely thus in a manuscript dated november thirteenth sixteen sixty five he used fluxions to find the tangent and the radius of curvature at any point on a curve and in october sixteen sixty six he applied them to several problems in the theory of equations newton communicated these results to his friends and pupils from and after sixteen sixty nine but they were not published in print till many years later it was also while staying at home at this time that he devised some instruments for grinding lenses to particular forms other than spherical and perhaps he decomposed solar light into different colors leaving out details and taking round numbers only his reasoning at this time on the theory of gravitation seems to have been as follows he suspected that the force which retained the moon in its orbit about the earth was the same as terrestrial gravity and to verify this hypothesis he proceeded thus he knew that if a stone were allowed to fall near the surface of the earth the attraction of the earth that is the weight of the stone caused it to move through sixteen feet in one second the moon's orbit relative to the earth is nearly a circle 
and as a rough approximation taking it to be so he knew that the distance of the moon and therefore the length of its path he also knew the time the moon took to go once round it namely a month hence he could easily find its velocity at any point such as m he could therefore find the distance m t through which he would move in the next second if it were not pulled by the earth's attraction at the end of that second it was however at m prime and therefore the earth must have pulled it through the distance t m prime in one second assuming the direction of the earth pull to be constant now he and several physicists of the time had conjectured from kepler's third law that the attraction of the earth on a body would be found to decrease as the body was removed further away from the earth in a proportion inversely as the square of the distance from the centre of the earth if this were the actual law and gravity were the sole force which retained the moon in its orbit then t m prime should be to sixteen feet in a proportion which inversely is the square of the distance of the moon from the centre of the earth to the square of the radius of the earth in sixteen seventy nine when he repeated the investigation t m prime was found to have the value which re was required by the hypothesis and the verification was complete but in sixteen sixty six his estimate of the distance of the moon was inaccurate and when he made the calculation he found that tm prime was about one-eighth less than it ought to have been on his hypothesis this discrepancy does not seem to have shaken his faith in the belief that gravity extended to the moon and varied inversely as the square of the distance but from whiston's notes of a conversation with newton it would seem that newton inferred that some other force probably descartes vortices acted on the moon as well as gravity this statement is confirmed by pemberton's account of the investigation it seems moreover that newton already believed firmly in the principle of universal gravitation that is every particle of matter attracts every other particle and suspected that the attraction varied as the product of their masses and inversely as the square of the distance between them but it is certain that he did not then know what the attraction of a spherical mass on any external point would be and he did not think it likely that a particle would be attracted by the earth as if the latter were concentrated into a single particle at its centre on his return to cambridge in sixteen sixty seven newton was elected to a fellowship at his college and permanently took up his residence there in the early part of 1669, or perhaps in 1668, he revised Barrow's lectures for him. The end of lecture 14 is known to have been written by Newton, but how much of the rest is due to his suggestions cannot now be determined. As soon as this was finished, he was asked by Barrow and Collins to edit and add notes to a translation of King Huysen's Algebra, which he consented to do but on condition that his name should not appear in the matter in sixteen seventy he also began a systematic exposition of his analysis by infinite series the object of which was to express the ordinate of a curve in an infinite algebraical series every term of which could be integrated by wallace's rule his results on the subject have been communicated to barrow collins and others in sixteen sixty nine this was never finished 
the fragment was published in seventeen eleven but the substance of it had been printed as an appendix to the optics in seventeen o four these works were only the first of newton's leisure most of the time during these two years being given up to optical researches in october sixteen sixty nine barrow resigned the lucasian chair in favour of newton during his tenure of the professorship it was newton's practice to lecture publicly once a week from half an hour to an hour at a time in one term of each year probably dictating his lectures as rapidly as they could be taken down and in the week following the lecture to devote four hours to appointments which he gave to students who wished to come to his rooms to discuss the results of the previous lecture he never repeated a course which usually consisted of nine or ten lectures and generally the lectures of one course began from the point at which the preceding course had ended the manuscripts of his lectures for seventeen out of the first eighteen years of his tenure are extant when first appointed newton chose optics for the subject of his lectures and researches and before the end of sixteen sixty nine he had worked out the details of his discovery on the decomposition of a ray of white light into rays of different colours by means of a prism the complete explanation of the theory of the rainbow followed from this discovery these discoveries form the subject matter of the lectures which he delivered as lucasian professor in the years sixteen sixty nine sixteen seventy and sixteen seventy one the chief new results were embodied in a paper communicated to the royal society in february sixteen seventy two and subsequently published in the philosophical transactions the manuscript of his original lectures was printed in seventeen twenty nine under the title lectiones optique this work is divided into two books the first of which contains four sections and the second five the first section of the first book deals with the decomposition of solar light by a prism in consequence of the unequal refragibility of the rays that compose it and a description of his experiments is added the second section contains an account of the method which newton invented for the determining of the coefficients of refraction of different bodies this is done by making a ray pass through a prism of the material so that the deviation is a minimum and he proves that if the angle of the prism be i and the deviation of the ray be delta then the refractive index will be the sine of one half i plus delta multiplied by the cosecant half i the third section is on refractions at plane surfaces here he shews that if a ray pass through a prism with minimum deviation the angle of incidence is equal to the angle of emergence most of this section is devoted to geometrical solutions of different problems the fourth section contains a discussion of refractions at curved surfaces the second book treats of the theory of colours of the rainbow by a curious chapter of accidents newton failed to correct the chromatic aberration of two colours by means of a couple of prisms he therefore abandoned the hope of making a refracting telescope which should be achromatic and instead designed a reflecting telescope probably on the model of a small one which he had made 
1668. The form he used is that still known by his name. The idea of it was naturally suggested by Gregory's telescope. In 1672 he invented a reflecting microscope, and some years later he invented the sextant, which was rediscovered by Hadley in 1731. His professorial lectures from 1673 to 1683 were on algebra and the theory of equations, and are described below but much of his time during these years was occupied with other investigations, and I may remark that throughout his life Newton must have devoted at least as much attention to the chemistry and theology as to mathematics, though his conclusions are not of sufficient interest to require mention here. His theory of colors and his deductions from his optical experiments were attacked with considerable vehemence by Pardis of France, Linus and Lucas at Liege, Hooke in England, and Huygens in Paris, but his opponents were finally refuted. The correspondence which this entailed on Newton occupied nearly all his leisure in the years 1672 to 1675 and proved extremely distasteful to him. Writing on December ninth, 1675, he says, I was so persecuted with discussions arising out of my theory of light that I blame my own imprudence for parting with so substantial a blessing as my quiet to run after a shadow. Again, after November eighteenth, 1676, he observes, I see I have made myself a slave to philosophy, but if i get rid of mr linus's business i will resolutely bid adieu to it eternally accepting what i do for my private satisfaction or leave to come out after me for i see a man must either resolve to put out nothing new or to become a slave to defend it the unreasonable dislike to have his conclusions doubted or to be involved in any correspondence about them was a prominent trait in newton's character he next set himself to examine the problem as to how light was really produced, and by the end of 1675 he had worked out the corpuscular or emission theory, a theory to which he was perhaps led by his researches on the theories of attraction. Only three ways have been suggested in which light can be produced mechanically. Either the eye may be supposed to send out something which, so to speak, feels the object, as the Greeks believed, or the object perceived may send out something which hits or affects the eye, as assumed in the emission theory. Or there may be some medium between the eye and the object, and the object may cause some change in the form or nature of this intervening medium, and thus affect the eye, as Hooke and Huygens supposed in the wave or undulatory theory. It will be enough here to say that on either of the two latter theories, all the obvious phenomena of geometrical optics, such as reflection, refraction, etc., can be accounted for. Within the present century, crucial experiments have been devised which give different results according as one or the other theory is adopted. All these experiments agree with the results of the undulatory theory and differ from the results of the Newtonian theory. The latter is therefore untenable, but whether the former represents the whole truth and nothing but the truth is still an open question. 
until however the theory of interference suggested by young was worked out by fresnel the hypothesis of huygens failed to account for all the facts and was open to more questions than that of newton it should be noted that newton nowhere expresses an opinion that the corpuscular theory is true but always treats it as a hypothesis from which if true certain results would follow it would moreover seem that he believed that the wave theory to be intrinsically more probable and it was only the difficulty of explaining diffraction on that theory that led him to reject it his remarks on the other physical subjects shew a similar caution newton's corpuscular theory was expounded in memoirs communicated to the royal society in december sixteen seventy five which are substantially reproduced in his optics published in seventeen o four in the latter work he dealt in detail with his theory of fits of easy reflection and transmission and the colours of thin plates to which he added an explanation of the colours of thick plates and observations on the inflection of light two letters written by newton in the year sixteen seventy six are sufficiently interesting to justify an allusion to them leibniz who had been in london in sixteen seventy three communicated some results to the royal society which he had supposed to be new but which it was pointed out to him had been previously proved by mouton this led to a correspondence with oldenburg the secretary of the society in sixteen seventy four leibniz wrote saying that he possessed general analytical methods depending on the infinite series oldenburg in reply told him that newton and gregory had used such series in their work in answer to a request for information newton wrote on june thirteenth sixteen seventy six giving a brief account of his method but adding the expansions of a binomial i e the binomial theorem and of the arc sine of x from the latter of which he deduced that of sine of x this seems to be the earliest known instance of the reversion of a series he also inserted an expression for the rectification of an elliptic arc in an infinite series leibniz wrote on august twenty seventh asking for fuller details and newton in a long but interesting reply dated october twenty fourth sixteen seventy six and sent through oldenburg gives an account of the way in which he had been led to some of his results in this letter newton begins by saying that altogether he had used three methods for expansion in a series his first was arrived at from the study of the method of interpolation by which wallace had found expressions for the area of a circle and hyperbola thus by considering the series of expressions one minus x squared quantity to the power zero over two one minus x squared quantity to the powers two over two and one minus x squared quantity to the four over two and so on he deduced by interpolations the law which connects the successive coefficients in the expansions of one minus x squared to the power of a half one minus x squared to the power of three halves and so on and then by analogy obtained the expression for the general term in the expansion of a binomial i e the binomial theorem he says that he proceeded to test this by forming the square of the expansion one minus x squared to the power of a half which reduced to one minus x squared and he proceeded in a similar way with other expansions 
he next tested the theorem in the case of one minus x squared quantity to the power of one half by extracting the square root of one minus x squared more arithmetico he also used the series to determine the areas of the circle and the hyperbola in infinite series and found that the results were the same as those he had arrived at by other means having established this result he then discarded the method of interpolation in series and employed his binomial theorem to express when possible the ordinate of a curve in an infinite series in ascending powers of the abscissa and thus by wallace's method he obtained expressions in an infinite series for the areas and arcs of curves in the manner described in the appendix to his optics and his de analisi per equationes numero infinitorum he states that he had employed his second method before the plague in sixteen sixty five sixty six and goes on to say that he was then obliged to leave cambridge and subsequently i e presumably on his return to cambridge he ceased to pursue these ideas as he found that nicholas mercator had employed some of them in his logarithmemotechnica published in sixteen sixty eight and he supposed that the remainder had been or would be found out before he himself was likely to publish his discoveries newton next explains that he had also a third method of which he says he had about sixteen sixty nine sent an account to barrow and collins illustrated by applications to areas rectification cubature and etc this was the method of fluxions but newton gives no description of it here though he adds some illustrations of its use the first illustration is on the quadrature of the curve represented by the equation y equals ax to the power m multiplied by the quantity b plus cx to the power n quantity to the power p which he says can be affected as a sum of quantity m plus one divided by n terms if quantity m plus one divided by m be a positive integer and which he thinks cannot otherwise be affected except by an infinite series he also gives a list of other forms which are immediately integrable of which chief are x is raised to the power of m times n minus one multiplied by open bracket a plus bx to the power n plus cx to the power of two n close bracket raised to the power of minus one next x to the power of open bracket m plus one half close bracket n minus one multiplied by open bracket a plus b x to the power of n plus c x to the power of two n close bracket raised to the power of minus one the next term x to the power of m times n minus one multiplied by open bracket a plus b x to the power of n plus c x to the power of two n close bracket raised to the power of plus or minus a half next term x to the power of m times n minus one multiplied by open bracket a plus b x to the power of n close bracket plus or minus a half open bracket c plus dx to the power of n close bracket raised to the power of minus one next term x to the power of m times n minus n minus one multiplied by open bracket a plus b x to the power of n close bracket 
raised to the power of one half multiplied by open bracket c plus dx to the power of n close bracket raised to the power of negative one half where m is a positive integer and n is any number whatever lastly he points out that the area of any curve can be easily determined approximately by the method of interpolation described below in discussing his methodus differentialis at the end of his letter newton alludes to the solution of the inverse problem of tangents a subject on which leibniz had asked for information he gives formulae for reversing any series, but says that besides these formulae he has two methods for solving such questions, which for the present he will not describe except by an anagram, which being read is as follows. Une methodis consistent in extractione fluentis quantitatis ex equazione simul involvente fluxionem ejus alteratantum in assumptione serie pro quantitate qualibet incognitia ex qua cetera commode derivare possunt et in collagione terminorum homologorum equationis resultantis ad eruendos terminos assumptae seriae he implies in this letter that he is worried by the questions he has asked and the controversies raised about every new matter which he produces, which shew his rashness in publishing quod ombrum captando et tenis perdiderum, quietamiam rem prosus substantialem. Leibniz did not reply to this letter till June 21, 1677. In his answer he explains his method of drawing tangents to curves, which he says proceeds not by fluxions of lines but by the differences of numbers and he introduces his notation of dx and dy for the infinitesimal differences between the coordinates of two consecutive points on a curve he also gives a solution of the problem to find a curve whose subtangent is constant which shews that he could integrate in sixteen seventy nine hook at the request of the royal society wrote to newton expressing a hope that he would make further communications to the society and informing him of various facts then recently discovered newton replied saying that he had abandoned the study of philosophy but he added that the earth's diurnal motion might be proved by the experiment of observing the deviation from the perpendicular of a stone dropped from a height to the ground an experiment which was subsequently made by the society and succeeded hook in his letter mentioned picard's geodetical researches in these picard used a value of the radius of the earth which is substantially correct this led Newton to repeat with Picard's data his calculations of 1666 on the lunar orbit, and he found the verification of his view was complete. He then proceeded to the general theory of motion under a centripetal force, and demonstrated 1. the equitable description of areas, 2. that if an ellipse were described about a focus under a centripetal force, then the law was that of the inverse square of the distance three and conversely that of the orbit of a particle projected under the influence of such a force was a conic or it may be he thought only an ellipse 
obeying his rule to publish nothing which could land him in scientific controversy these results were locked up in his notebooks and it was only a specific question addressed to him five years later that led to their publication the universal arithmetic which is on algebra theory of equations and miscellaneous problems contains the substance of newton's lectures during the years sixteen seventy three to sixteen eighty three his manuscript of it is still extant whiston extracted somewhat reluctant permission from newton to print it and it was published in seventeen o seven Amongst several new theorems on various points in algebra and the theory of equations, Newton here enunciated the following important results. He explained that the equations, whose roots are the solution of a given problem, will have as many roots as there are different possible cases, and he considered how it happened that the equation to which a problem led might contain roots which did not satisfy the original question he extended descartes rule of signs to give limits to the number of imaginary roots he used the principle of continuity to explain how two real and unequal roots might become imaginary in passing through equality and illustrated this by geometrical considerations thence he shewed that imaginary roots must occur in pairs newton's newton also here gave rules to find a superior limit to the positive roots of a numerical equation and to determine the approximate values of the numerical roots he further enunciated the theorem known by his name for finding the sum of the nth powers of the roots of an equation and laid the foundation of the theory of symmetrical functions of the roots of an equation the most interesting theorem contained in the work is his attempt to find a rule analogous to that of descartes for real roots by which the number of imaginary roots of an equation can be determined he knew that the result which he obtained was not universally true but he gave no proof and did not explain what were the exceptions to the rule his theorem was as follows suppose the equation to be of the nth degree arranged in descending powers of x the coefficient of x to the n being positive and suppose the n plus one fractions one n over n plus one multiplied by two over one n minus one over n minus two multiplied by three over two and so on and then the middle term of the series would be n minus p plus one all divided by n minus p that fraction multiplied by p plus one over p and so on and the second last term being two over one multiplied by the fraction n over n minus one and finally the final term one to be formed and written below the corresponding terms of the equation then if the square of any term when multiplied by the corresponding fraction be greater than the product of the terms on each side of it put a plus sign above it otherwise put a minus sign above it and put a plus sign above the first and last terms now consider any two consecutive terms in the original equation and the two symbols written above them then we may have any one of the four following cases alpha the terms of the same sign and the symbols of the same sign beta the terms of the same sign and the symbols of the opposite signs gamma 
the terms of opposite signs and the symbols of the same sign. Delta. The terms of the opposite signs and the symbols of the opposite signs. Then it has been shown that the number of negative roots will not exceed the number of cases, alpha, and the number of positive roots will not exceed the number of cases, gamma, and therefore the number of imaginary roots is not less than the number of cases, beta and delta. In other words, the number of changes of signs in the row of symbols written above the equation is an inferior limit to the number of imaginary roots. Newton, however, asserted that you may also know how many roots are impossible by counting the changes of sign in the series of symbols formed as above. That is to say, he thought that in general the actual number of positive, negative, and imaginary roots could be got only by the rule and not merely superior or inferior to the limits of these numbers. But though he knew that the rule was not universal, he could not find what were the exceptions to it. This theorem was subsequently discussed by Campbell, Maclaurin, Euler, and other writers. At last, in 1865, Sylvester succeeded in proving the general result. In August 1684, Halley came to Cambridge in order to consult Newton about the law of gravitation. Hooke, Huygens, Halley, and Wren had all conjectured that the force of the attraction of the sun or earth on an external particle varied inversely as the square of the distance. These writers seem to have independently shewn that if Kepler's conclusion were rigorously true, as to which they were not quite certain, the law of attraction must be that of the inverse square, but they could not deduce from the law of the orbits of the planets. Halley explained that their investigations were stopped by their inability to solve this problem, and asked Newton if he could find out what the orbit of a planet would be if the law of attraction were that of an inverse square. Newton immediately replied that it was an ellipse, and promised to send or write out afresh the demonstration of it which he had found in 1679. This was sent in November of 1684. End of section 24, chapter 16, part 1. Recording by Paul King, pjk.scripts.mit.edu forward slash pkj.